Are you ready for the next level of leadership? It's going to be here before you know it. Today's leaders need the skills, connections, and savvy to become top professionals in their fields. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet people who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders in their organizations, identifying the trends that will most likely disrupt their business and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member at universities in the U.S. and Germany. I am delighted today to welcome Dr. Bill Swoyer. Bill is currently serving as the Vice President for Clinical and Translational Research at the Research Institute at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and as the Director of Nationwide Children's Center for Clinical and Translational Research. He is a professor of pediatrics at The Ohio State University and serves as co-PI for the OSU Center for Clinical and Translational Sciences. So my goal in creating this show was to help leaders refresh how they lead and how they think about leadership on an ongoing basis. The world we live in and work in is changing daily. And for those of us in leadership roles, we need to update our thinking on a regular basis as well. So in addition to sharing models and experience, I invite you to find one Thing from each weekly segment that you can put into practice in your leadership. Think about this. When was the last time you changed your leadership behavior in response to the dynamic environment in which we live? Are you experimenting with behaviors that will continually keep you up to date and even better keep you ahead of the curve? Are you at risk of being a depreciated leader, outdated and even possibly obsolete? So my tagline would be, are you the flip phone of leadership? If you are not updating, you are likely the flip phone. Even if you are working, and many of us are, 16 hours a day, we're often so focused on the work of the job that we don't integrate into our daily practice updating how our how we think about leadership. So that is my invitation for this show. So the outcome I am hoping for in this session, in an era where we're facing major changes in our medical system, with medical costs as high as 20% of GDP, Bill is a leader who's working to address this challenge. We've talked about the need for physician leadership because of the dramatic changes required in the health field. Bill will talk to us about some of the changes and a program he's created to help move us toward some portion of a solution. So, Bill, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So let's talk a a little bit about your background. What do you do? What is a pediatric nephrologist? Yes. So uh, I am, as you said, a pediatric nephrologist, which is essentially a children's kidney doctor. So I've been serving in that role clinically for probably 25 years. But I have spent the majority of my career as a, what we would call a physician scientist. So not only providing the care of today, but doing research to try and figure out what the care of tomorrow should look like. So for the last 10 years, I have served at Nationwide Children's Hospital in the role as Vice President for Clinical and Translational Research. So the charge when I was hired is to integrate the clinical care that was taking place in the hospital with the new knowledge that was being generated in the research institute. Quite simply, the challenge was how are we going to incorporate that knowledge into the everyday delivery of care to patients? And that was actually the impetus for the program that I developed. Okay, so let's use that as the lead-in. What is the program that you developed? So this uh, program is actually a pilot program, which uh, we have termed Learn from Every Patient. And this stemmed from my initial effort to respond to the challenge that I was given when I was recruited of integrating research and clinical care. So one of the first things that I did was go around and speak to all of the clinical leaders in the hospital 
And then in addition, I went and spoke to all of the research leaders in the research institute. And after pulling all of that, the information that I learned from all of those interviews together, I came to the conclusion that the approach that we had been using, and, and actually today still are using, of adding research studies onto the current clinical practice of medicine was actually not a strategy for the future. It is what we do now. It does lead to gradual incremental improvements in care as a result mm -hmm. of those research studies. But what I came to conclude after doing all of those interviews is that a much more powerful approach to go forward would be to fully integrate the research into the clinical care so that in fact the research, the acquisition of new knowledge became part and parcel of the everyday delivery of care. And this is why we gave it the name of Learn from Every Patient. So it's a self, uh, self-explanatory title. So I'm just thinking through the implications on a broader scale. The title makes intuitive sense that as leaders in every field, we should be learning from each of our interactions. You know, I talk about leadership being taking on the mind of the scientist, mm. continually testing. Yet, how do you make that practical? So the reality of, of our situation in healthcare is that we have developed policies and procedures and, in fact, laws that separate the provision of clinical care mm -hmm. from the policies and procedures and laws that govern the what we call research, what, what I now mm -hmm. call the development of new knowledge to improve the care. So these two activities are truly separated by these policies and approaches and laws, when in fact what we really need is to put them back together so that when we are providing care, we are using that as information to better inform how we will improve care in the future. And as you say that, I think of, of course, you're not using humans as guinea pigs. And then that's presumably why they were pulled apart. Well, in part, and there, there were abuses in research studies in the past mm -hmm. where patients' best interests were not protected. And this, is, this has led to the evolution of institutional review boards whose sole job is to protect research subjects from studies or investigators or interventions that might offer them more harm than potential benefit. So the, the idea of connecting these two processes really was quite simple. In fact, I have a, an engineering background, and after I looked at all of the activities that were going on, I drew a very simple diagram to envision what the integration would look like. And in fact, it is what an engineer would call a systems engineering approach. It's very mm -hmm simple. But the reality is that that is not how medicine and research are practiced in the current day. So what was a very simple concept in design turned out to be quite disruptive in its effects on how we practice medicine and how we do research. So as you bring up the word disruptive, which is kind of one of the tag words I think we're facing right now across fields, mm -hmm. you also have a passion for leadership. And so as you're thinking about how to implement something that's disruptive, can you give us a little insight into how you think about leading transformation? Sure. Well, I think one most important concept is physicians almost always end up on teams whether it's a large medical center or a small medical center, inpatient or outpatient. And when physicians end up on teams, they typically will end up in either the leadership group or as the leader of the team. That is just a function of their roles in the organization and in the delivery of health care. What is unfortunate is that historically we have actually not done a particularly good job at giving leadership training to physicians, even though they end up leading groups, they end up leading mm -hmm clinics, they end up leading hospitals or medical centers. Mm -hmm. So um, I think leadership uh, development is a critical developmental skill for physicians because they will almost for sure need those skills as they advance through their career. And to your point, they haven't been traditionally offered in medical schools. 
No, but that also is changing as people are recognizing that when they put physicians in these roles, that they oftentimes haven't been given the fundamental theories and skills to be effective in those roles. Mm -hmm. They're smart, they're accomplished, but those accomplishments aren't necessarily the leadership skills that they need mm -hmm. to be successful in those those roles. So I think that the role of the physician, appreciating that the physician is oftentimes in a leadership role is important both for them and for their organizations to, to recognize. Mm -hmm. And many, many medical centers now are investing significant resources in physician leadership because of this recognition of mm -hmm. the importance of how of whether they perform well or poorly in those leadership roles. And so I want to say at this point, if any of our listeners are interested in exploring physician leadership, we have a couple of interviews, one with Chip Shoba and one with Robert Falcone. Chip being recently the dean of the med school at Dartmouth and Bob uh, working in Columbus, Ohio, having run been the CEO of a hospital with a significant trauma center. So both of them offer interesting perspectives on physician leadership. So now let's go back to the conversation about learning from every patient. Why is the program so important? And well, why now? So the charge that I was given when I was hired, as I mentioned, was to integrate the research and clinical care. But when I stepped back from that and looked at where that fit into the changes that are going on in healthcare, there are a number of challenges, a number of opportunities, some of which are actually unprecedented. So we now have the charge to move to electronic health records. There's dramatic increase in interest uh, in society and in the, in the National Institutes of Health in clinical and translational research. So these are outstanding opportunities to move things forward, but as you mentioned in your introduction, healthcare is a significant expense for our country, somewhere between 18 and 18 and a half percent of our gross domestic product, and its cost to society is going up at a significantly higher rate mm -hmm. than inflation. So it is already very expensive for our society, and its costs are going up at a, essentially an unaffordable rate. So although the opportunities are there, there also are significant pressures for us to figure out ways to contain and hopefully even reduce the costs that are necessary to provide adequate care for our citizens. And then add to that 10,000 baby boomers a day retiring. So the population's aging, the folks coming along behind, the generation behind us is smaller. And I'm assuming costs will continue to go up because of advancements. Yes. So you, you make a very important point. It's not that advancements are not taking place. We have enormous numbers of advancements, uh, very high-tech advancements. But most all of those advancements, in order to incent companies, people to mm -hmm. develop those advancements, they are, are interested in having a return on their investment. And when they get the return on the investment, that is, those are the fees that they charge. So those advances typically, not always, but typically mm -hmm. will come at a higher cost to society. Mm -hmm. So one good example is that we're seeing more and more people come out with monoclonal antibodies, which are very highly targeted to a variety of different diseases, but they are much more expensive than the traditional less specific drugs that we are used to using. So much better care, but at a higher cost. So the, the challenge that lies in front of us, in, in my perspective, is to figure out ways to make care better and cheaper at the same time. Mm -hmm. And this was what was so alluring to me about this systems engineering approach to actually learn from every patient is historically only somewhere between one and three percent of patients in the U.S. are actually involved in clinical trials committed to improving care. With this model that, that uh, we have, have uh, tested, what happens is we go to 100% of patients. So every patient that receives care is contributing data that enables us to then analyze it, publish it, and mm -hmm. use it to improve care. So it greatly amplifies our ability to improve care. So I'm just, I go all over in my mind with, with our conversation. So when you say use data for every interaction, that sounds like the implementation of big data. It is. So uh, as hospitals are moving to the electronic health record, there are enormous amounts of data being collected. So historically, however, data was collected in, in paper charts 
really for two main purposes. One is to make sure that we adequately documented the care that was provided to substantiate or support the mm -hmm. billing for that care. And the other was to save it in the, in the case where there might be a legal action being considered. So it, there it was kind of protective. In our model and where we are moving with, mm -hmm. with medical care in the future, the data now have what I would consider to be a higher purpose. We are collecting the data because we intend to use the data from every patient because that, that patient's data is going to be part of what allows us to improve the care of the patient that follows behind them. Are there legal implications with this? Can so, I say I'm, I don't want my data shared? Uh, yes. So there are significant and very complicated issues around the control of data, mm -hmm. the ownership of data, the sharing of data. And it's probably a, a more complicated topic than we have time to go into. But there are many issues to be addressed. But mm -hmm. I should point out that they are all addressable issues. Okay. So these are, these are not problems that can't or have not, in various instances, been addressed. So there are methods to partially or completely de-identify data okay. so that if you use my data, you could never tell that it was I who contributed the data. And that is one known and proven way to protect mm -hmm. patients' identity while benefiting from the use of the information that we collected in providing their care. That's the one that comes to mind. I have friends with various illnesses that they would rather not have made public yes. for all kinds of reasons. But as long as the data can be anonymized, it seems quite beneficial. Absolutely. And, and this is the, the challenge in front of us is that we now have the capacity and in fact are collecting enormous amounts of data. The electronic health record collects data on patient care. The laboratory collects uh, a digital data on the blood tests, the urine tests. We're now collecting digital data on the radiology and the, the other scanning technologies that are being used. The pharmacy is collecting large amounts of data about the use and, and um, dispensing of the various medicines and exactly which minute they were dispensed. So we are accumulating enormous amounts of data. The challenge is how to use all of that data to generate information that is useful to improve care. So on that note, we're going to go to commercial, but the use of data to improve care for every subsequent patient seems really a higher purpose. Yes, and, and in fact, that is what we are, are headed toward, is trying to make better use of the information that we obtain in providing care. Cool. So we will be right back with Dr. Bill Smoyer and Maureen Metcalf, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one -on -one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. 
That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. So welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. You are joining Maureen Metcalf and Dr. Bill Smoyer, and we're talking about the use of data to improve healthcare. And I'm assuming it's outcomes and cost. So tell us more about how do you use the large volume of data that's collected and turn it into something that's productive, not just a pile of data. Sure. So in our pilot program, the Learn From Every Patient program, the approach that we took was to try and get the physicians interested in helping us collect these data. And when possible, we tried to get the data collected as discrete data fields and discrete data elements because those are much easier to learn from as the data is collected. They're easier for computers to use. So in our system, we converted as much of the clinical documentation fields to discrete data fields, and we also invited the physicians to ask research questions that they thought would improve the care of their patients. And one of the innovative aspects of our program was to convert the doctor's clinical questions about how to improve care of their patients into data fields that could be embedded into the electronic health record so that when a patient was seen in clinic or in the hospital, not only were we collecting data around their clinical care, we were also collecting additional data elements around things that the doctors felt would allow them to improve the care of their own patients. And in doing that, we actually were able to get the doctors to be interested in changing the way that they provided care rather than resistant to that. And physicians' resistance to being told how they need to, to change the care, particularly as electronic health records have rolled out, has proven to be one of the biggest challenges to the successful implementation of programs like this where, where we learn from the data. So our approach was to engage them completely by offering them the opportunity to be part of improving their own mm-hmm. patient's care. So w- with this model then, th- a, a care would be provided, we would collect both the clinical and the research data, although they would be seamless. They mm-hmm. just are data fields that would be collected, and all of that would get migrated to a data mart where all of those various data sets would exist in conjunction with the laboratory data and the radiology data. And from a research perspective, they could exist also alongside proteomic or metabolic or metabolomic or, or transcriptomic research data for that same patient. So very large amounts of data that could be either linked directly to a patient Mm-hmm. what we would call identified data, or de-identified data where it is unlinked from the patient's medical record number. But when you start having large amounts of data like that together, that offers us the opportunity then to analyze those data and begin to look at, just as you mentioned, things like outcomes. Is treatment A better than treatment B? Do people that present with one form of a disease respond better to treatment A that everyone is getting or not? And uh, so in our Learn From Every Patient model, the concept was we then provided those data back to those physicians who had asked for it. Okay, and- so so just thinking of having worked with enterprise-wide computer system implementation, there is often a great amount of resistance for all kinds of reasons. But to your point with physicians, I want to practice medicine the way I want to practice medicine, and now you're putting me on a standardized system that forces specific behaviors and makes me a typist. Yes, and so there there is widespread resistance in general mm-hmm. on the part of physicians to being told you have to do something. Most physicians went into medicine and practice medicine and believe that they practice the very best medicine they know how. Mm-hmm. The, the reality is that not every variation in care is the best. <laughs> the reality is that only one of them is the best, but we have not embedded systems to help us learn which is the best yet. And this model offers us an approach to begin to learn by collecting the data and analyzing the data so that we can begin to refine the care that we provide based on continual production of evidence. 
And just to complete the circle of this, this model of care, the idea then is that those data that get analyzed, what we would then call evidence, will get published in the peer-reviewed literature. And as a general rule, peer-reviewed publications are the currency of the realm to provide the basis for changes in care. This is what we call evidence-based medicine. Mm -hmm. The evidence really are peer-reviewed publications. So, so, so this circle then creates a continuum of evidence-based medicine that is fully integrated with evidence-generating medicine. Okay. And so this is what we mean by learning from every patient. They're, the data that we collect to provide care is the same data that we're going to use to improve care. And so the innovations or improvements happen much faster if I'm collecting data from every patient rather than I'm chartering research studies that need to be funded and staffed. I'm, I'm sure somebody's still analyzing the data. Yes, yeah, so it does require an analysis of the data. And again, getting back to what we mean by evidence-based medicine, mm -hmm. which is a very popular lay term now, the evidence requires the analysis of the data and the peer-reviewed publication of it. That is what gives mm -hmm. it its validity. But in, in this model, once you have the evidence, then the evidence should be used to make changes in the care. In our model, then that evidence would lead to changes in the standardized care that we began our model with. So if a patient comes in with disease X and mm -hmm. gets care Y, when they come back to see you in a year or two, what you could tell them then mm -hmm. that we cannot tell them now is your care will be different when we mm -hmm. see you in two years, mm -hmm. and it will be based on evidence. And that is something we cannot offer most patients today, is that their care will be based on evidence rather than experience of the physician, the individual physician providing care for them. So this embeds the learning into the care. And the learning across a massive system of patients, not the learning from each unique physician that may or may not see five patients of a certain variety. Yes. In a year. So depending on how widely uh, a system like this is implemented, that w would set the parameters around the, the, the learning. In our pilot program, we chose children who, were, who had cerebral palsy and were receiving care with one diagnosis at one center. So our vision is to expand what we learned with that program mm -hmm. at that medical center to other programs at the same medical center, but also to analogous programs providing care for those same children with those same diagnoses at other medical centers. So, so this is what we call a local learning health system. So the idea is, is to use the data to learn and improve care at the local level and mm -hmm. then spread what has been learned both across mm -hmm. other medical centers and within medical centers. So this is kind of a bottom-up approach mm -hmm. to spreading the learning. So there is another approach to creating learning, system, learning health systems, which involves connecting the infrastructure, the data mm -hmm. of many medical centers, and even w whether they're on the same platform or a different platform, connecting them all and then beginning to ask questions with very large numbers of patients, mm. millions of patients. That is what I would call a top-down model okay. for development of learning health systems. So ours is a bottom-up model. So, and I expect that at some point in the future, yeah. they will probably move toward each other. So I'm just, again, thinking through one, to clarify the, the name of the hospital is Nationwide Children's, but it's named after Nationwide Insurance, not a designation of the physical location being national. Right, but it is one of the largest children's hospitals and research institutes in the country. So it has proven to be fertile ground for doing a pilot program like this. So what we are, are hoping to do now is that this pilot program w was quite successful. It did show that we could reduce hospitalizations, reduce ER visits, mm. reduce urgent care visits. And uh, at the same time, it actually reduced the total health system charges. So at least in this pilot program, we were able to improve care because we had four or five learning projects mm -hmm. going on where the data were being collected to improve care. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it reduced the total health system charges by about 25% that year. That's significant. Yes. Better outcomes and 25% reduction in cost. Yes. 
So we, we have been pleased with the pilot program results, and we are, are now exploring a number of opportunities with other hospitals and other health systems who might be willing to try some of this apparently disruptive <laughs> innovation to try and embed systems like this in their hospitals and health systems. So if I were to think about scaling this, the top-down side, that would really mean like an NIH dealing with every variation of health issue across scale, so either national or global. Yes. So in our model, which started Mm -hmm. from the bottom-up approach, what would happen is that this would happen across clinical programs or diseases. Mm-hmm. that then would spread to other institutions that were taking care of the same groups of patients. Mm-hmm. And then with that learning at that institution, the knowledge of how to implement the system could be spread to patients with other diagnoses. So it will likely be a, an evolutionary process. So I think mm-hmm. the idea of just dropping it in and implementing it in one fell swoop is unlikely to be successful. In fact, Bad. <laughs> most physicians are, are not especially interested in having you tell them to, to change care unless you provide them evidence. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, most physicians, whether they're interested in publications or not, if you offer them a realistic opportunity to participate mm-hmm. in a meaningful way in the improvement in care, most of them will be very happy to participate in in a project like that. And that is what we have tried to do Mm -hmm. in our Learn From Every Patient pilot program is to bring everyone's interests to bear so that we are all in alignment about how we need to change in order to improve care. So I made an assumption nationwide, National Institutes of Health, there's no reason that this isn't a global, other than it's new. There's no reason that that the data collection wouldn't happen around the globe. No, there's no reason that it couldn't, but there are reasons that it may not. One of the challenges both within our own country and certainly between countries is the standardization of data, the nomenclature that Mm. that is used. So when you collect data, for instance, uh, uh, at least a few years ago when a colleague of mine did a search, there were nine different definitions for what it meant to be a child. So if you can't define the patient population, Mm -hmm. it it makes it very hard to merge Mm -hmm. data collected from populations. So these are all solvable problems, but these are challenges that would exist not just within, but in mm-hmm. particular between mm-hmm. health systems. And so having implemented enterprise software systems in global companies, they were similar challenges with the data definitions. Yes. At one point, just a silly story, we were implementing in Germany, rolling out a system that was started in the U.S., and we had selected the wrong character set. So the umlaut wasn't one of the characters. And one recommendation was just don't use it. That'd be like not using the O. And that's probably a, a incredibly silly example. But we run into all kinds of complications mm. and data definition being significant in every system I've been involved yeah. with. So, so I, I think your example makes a, makes a very good point. It's oftentimes nothing fancy, <laughs> but it, it is critically important, mm. particularly with electronic systems that are, that are digital, that we match things exactly so that the data are in fact shareable, so that the data are equally interpretable. So the data acquisition, the data storage, Mm -hmm. the data definitions are all critical challenges, but they are all also, I should say, very solvable challenges. Mm -hmm. So we don't need new technology. We need new vision and leadership to commit to solving these problems. And there are people that are working on these sorts of problems between various countries and continents now. I want to end on that note. We need new vision and leadership to do this because we know how to implement these systems. On a, again, my experience has been on the corporate side, and it's hard. On the medical side, a mistake has implications on people's lives. It has to be done right. But it's doable. These are things we know how to do. They're just hard. Yes. 
So the stakes are high in medicine, but it is not only our industry where there are very high stakes. There are many industries where there are high stakes and precision and accuracy and low failure rates are critical. So I just want to emphasize again, these are solvable mm -hmm. problems. What we need is people and organizations with, with the vision and the commitment to solve them that see that this is one of the things that I hope would be considered the innovative aspect of our pilot program, which is we have moved now from a state where we were publishing opinions and editorials about the importance of doing things like creating learning health systems to now we have an example. It's just one example. It's just at one program. It's just in one disease. But once you have an example, then the entire concept that it's not doable dissolves. And then the question becomes a matter of commitment and will and leadership. Commitment, will, and leadership. So on that note, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Dr. Bill Smore and Maureen Metcalf. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one -on -one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. You are joining Maureen Metcalf and Dr. Bill Smoyer talking about changes in medical care and the leadership required to implement them. So vision, will, and leadership and commitment. So how do we implement this? You've said it's one piece of evidence that this is possible and it's evidence that something can completely disrupt some parts of how we deliver medicine. That seems like a really big deal. And yet I can see a lot of people saying, I hope I retire before this is done because it's, it's going to change the way I do my, my work, the work I love doing. Yes. So the reality in the context of what we've been talking about, all of these unprecedented opportunities that, that uh, we see in medicine and the challenges of the enormous expenses of healthcare, that the expenses are going up way higher than the rate of inflation. So all of these serve to remind us that we actually need to change the way we provide care. So providing care the way we have been is not sustainable. So the opportunity here is can we capitalize on things that we have now that we didn't? The electronic health system is, uh, is an important aspect of that and the ability to capture unprecedented amounts of data. So and can analyze we, it. And analyze that and use that to improve care. We didn't used to have that. That was mm -hmm. not what we collected data for. As I mentioned before, it was for mm -hmm. documentation. 
But now we have access to data, and the question is, can we use it to improve care? I think the answer is unequivocally yes. The challenge, however, is how can we improve care and reduce the costs of providing care? And that is essentially a burning platform that we have right now in healthcare is we need to find ways to reduce the, the amount of money that our country spends on providing care for our citizens. So the innovation that we hope we've provided an example of is that it is not impossible to improve care and reduce costs at the same time. So although it's only a pilot, it is possible to make care better and more affordable together. And this, this is, we hope, is something that will change the conversation from if we can do it to how and whether we ha are willing to make the commitment to do it. But the reality is that the practice of medicine will have to change and that will require people with vision and leadership to not just accept it, but to embrace it for the opportunities that are there. As I oftentimes like to say, in all chaos, there lies opportunities. So change is upon us, but that has created opportunities we never had in the past. And so we're hoping to capitalize on that. So as a citizen and someone who's aging, I, <laughs> who pays insurance, this seems like good news because at some point we'll be on Medicare or Medicaid. And the country budgets for that. And it's a large part of our national debt, which is also increasing. So it seems like, well, the, those are big numbers and pretty far outside of my daily experience. It does impact our tax burden, for yes. one. Well, and, and indeed, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has expressed interest, and we have been out to talk with them about this model because they are a payer for some hundred million of our 310 million citizens, and they are very interested in innovative approaches to control the cost of health care. In fact, we now have a Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which is an entire group of people dedicated to seeking out innovative strategies to control costs. One of the ways is by aligning incentives with the physicians that provide care. So a third of our population is on Medicare or Medicaid? Roughly. And that will likely increase as the population ages and lifespan continues to grow. Potentially, if we can afford it. And the if we can afford it is a really politically charged question. It is. And so much of the politics swirling around health care in recent months, as charged that has been, as it has been, it has been largely about how to distribute the monies that are currently being put forward for the provision of health care. We have not yet begun to address what I think is the larger challenge, which is how to reduce those costs. Redistributing them does not solve the problem that they are continuing to rise. And again, more people retiring, more people aging, and extended lifespan, and improved care that is more expensive, all of that leads to a catastrophic equation if we don't have a way to pay for it Correct. and make it more efficient. Yes, so either less people will get care or, or people will get less, less care. Less care. And you know, of course, no one is interested in saving money on healthcare if we have to provide worse care. So the, the challenge here, and again, I, I see this mm -hmm. as a leadership opportunity for our medical community, is to envision different models of healthcare that could allow us to, to achieve this aim. Envision different models of healthcare. Just letting that sink in. As a kid who always, my dad was in the military, so we went to military hospitals and we were cared for. There are lots of people in the world who didn't have that experience and who have not lived to their average life expectancy rate because they didn't have care. So this helps make care available for a broader portion of the population at a reduced cost, and better care. Well, I think it's safe to say that if we can control the cost better, that would give us more options mm -hmm. for how we wanted to distribute care. So okay. it doesn't, doesn't answer the presume. question about how it will be distributed, but it does create options. Mm -hmm. Right now, we're facing a very difficult options because we are facing continually rising costs that are significantly higher than the inflation rate. And we're going to need to make some changes. 
So we can wait until they are critical, or we can try and come up with innovative solutions and pilot mm -hmm. them, just as we have tried to do in our program. So there are other approaches to pilot similar sorts of things, but these are the ideas that we will mm -hmm. need to be searching for and maybe implementing many of them and measuring them, expanding them, seeing which ones can successfully scale up or not. But what mm -hmm. we desperately need is more people to be coming up with the vision and taking the risks of introducing new approaches that might meet both of these needs, improving care and reducing costs at the same time. So it sounds like a burning platform. It sounds like a no-brainer also. Here is an opportunity, not easy, but proven results in a small pilot that will move us forward. What's the biggest barrier you're seeing? So I think that the biggest barrier is that it is, in the, in the healthcare industry, it is relatively difficult to make changes. Change does not come easy in our industry. Mm -hmm. And part of it uh, is what we've talked about because there are high risks for failure when the system fails. But it is also in part because the people that provide the care, the physicians, are used to being leaders of their teams. And they've been well-trained. They may have been mentored by a particular mentor or a particular group of, of mentors. And they mm -hmm. believe that they are providing the best care. So until someone can explain to them or prove to them that there are better ways to provide care, they're not going to be interested in changing. I do believe that physicians will be willing to change, but we need to make it clear how they can participate in being part of the change and how they too will benefit. And as I've alluded to earlier, I think that they will believe that they benefit if you can convince them that their patients will directly benefit. Because that, after all, is why most of us went into medicine. Good, super smart people wanna, wanting to help improve the health quality of their patients. Yes. So hopefully we have people listening in the medical practice who would like to learn more about this. How might they do that? Well, so I would be happy to receive emails from anyone that is interested in communicating with me. It's William smoyer at nationwide children's with an s.org i'd be happy to ha have people provide suggestions or continue the discussion uh, mm -hmm. we also have a few publications on this there was a publication last year and then an editor uh, with an editorial that followed it in a, a jama viewpoint article last december so they're welcome to look at those and and if they're interested in exploring it or potentially engaging in uh, an opportunity to uh, explore scaling it up, we would certainly welcome that because we're comfortable with the results of the pilot study. The question that remains is, could this be used to save more money and improve more care for more patients in the future? So we don't have the answer to those questions now, but we're very interested in getting the answers to those questions. And those are very testable mm -hmm. hypotheses of whether, in fact, it is scalable. So this is what research scientists do, right? It is. One of my clients uh, was, one of my favorite statements from her was, as a researcher, I don't need to be right. I just need to keep learning. Yes. And it sounds like this is a beautiful foundation upon which to build, to solve some very big problems that we will all personally be impacted by at some point in our lives. Well, we're very hopeful that in fact uh, we will have the opportunity to scale this up and test this in other populations and at other institutions. And then in fact, if it is even only partially as successful mm -hmm. as the pilot program, it does offer, uh, we, we hope, very nice opportunities to both save money and improve care in a systematic way. So for listeners who aren't physicians or physician medical researchers, Hopefully, we have lots of people who listen because they want to get smart and learn about what is happening with other leaders in other fields. So I want to generalize this a little bit. As we think about this type of disruption is happening across all industries across the globe. And so I talk often about leaders taking on the mind of the scientists. So as we listen to Bill, who is both a scientist and a researcher and an organizational leader, hopefully what you're hearing from him is there are brilliant opportunities to solve the problems we face. It's so easy to feel 
overwhelmed by the complexity and the challenges. And if we're not innovating, they are overwhelming and our future looks worse than our present day. But by shifting our mindset toward the willingness to exit our comfort zone, to demonstrate vision, and to do the very difficult work of everything from defining data sets across the world to helping people recognize that how they practice their craft, whether it be the craft of medicine or the craft of any other industry, most of us went into those fields because we love doing good work. And the idea that physicians get to contribute to the evolution of the field of medicine is a brilliant invitation. I hope that most of us have the opportunity to contribute to forward our field through research and implementation and the courage it takes to be wrong, to learn from every experiment. And that's a different way of looking at leadership than many of us who thought we had to be right all the time. Now I have to be learning all the time, not right all the time. And that's easy to say until I'm the one who's wrong. And, <laughs> and, and our hope with this is that we can systematize the learning so that it is occurring with all of the data that we collect on all of the patients all of the time. So that there's small changes. Yes. So thank you to our listeners and thank you so much, Bill. To reach Bill, again, his email address is... It's william.smoyer at nationwidechildrens, with an S, dot org. And my email is maureen at metcalf-associates.com. I would love to see this conversation continue on Facebook, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. We would love to see your comments. If you miss Bill's email address, post a comment on Facebook and let us know if you're doing experiments and what you would like to see more of with regard to our show or if you would like more information from Bill. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week. We'll be right back.